This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome aboard a live episode of Cascade of History. We have been off for about five weeks on a special winter hiatus hibernation. I apologize to everyone for having to play reruns for the last five consecutive episodes. But, you know, this, this show is about history, so the reruns are always just fresh as when they were, when they were brand new. But there's still, if you believe in the power of live and local radio like I do, and I'm Felix Bunnell, the host of Cascade of History, you believe that there's something special about that live connection of people having a conversation about something interesting, something you care about, and doing it while you're listening in live. So welcome back. It is. It's, it's what's the date today? February 19th, 2023. Our last live show was on January 8th, so I'm glad to be back. Um, might be a little bit rusty. Going to apologize in advance and make excuses in case anything technically goes wrong. But we've got a wonderful show for you. In case you've never heard this show before or in case you've heard it a million times, you know that I always start out by talking about what we're all about. Number one, we come from the historic Master at Arms Quarters at historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, nowadays better known as Magnuson Park in North Seattle, right on the shores of historic Lake Washington. Our signal on 101.1 FM, that's space, that's that low-power FM station, reaches much of North Seattle and across Lake Washington to my native land of Kirkland, Washington, where I grew up. So you're listening from Kirkland tonight. Welcome to the show. And we talk about all things Pacific Northwest history, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, sometimes Montana, sometimes Alaska even. And we had this long-form conversations with people doing interesting things um, about uh, studying local history or doing archaeological digs or working on books or photo collections. We really cover all the bases because um, I think local history is one of the most important things that people spend their time collecting and talking about and writing about. It's a great way to feel connected to your community. And it's just fun to have uh, long-form conversations. So uh, coming up later in the show, in the second half of the show, we're going to talk to Greg Herschelt. Greg recently retired from a long radio career here in the Pacific Northwest. I worked with him, oh, 30 years ago at Cairo Radio, my first go-around with Cairo back in the early 90s. I listened to him on KJR when I was a kid back around 1980. But his career goes back even further than that, and he has a has an ancestor who was in um, radio back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. So we'll talk to Greg about his career. We'll talk to Greg about his grandfather, Gene Herschelt. Uh, that will be in the second half of the show. But coming up in just a couple minutes, we're going to talk to Katie Yamasaki. She's the granddaughter of Minoru Yamasaki. He is the architect, the late architect, who designed what was called the United States Science Pavilion for the 1962 World's Fair. Japanese-American, Seattle-born, um, designed that, uh, what's now the Pacific Science Center, which has been in the news in the last week or so uh, around some plans the Science Center has that they want to uh, alter some of those reflecting pools. And we'll talk a little bit of that with Katie. We'll talk about her grandfather as well. And But uh, Minoru Yamasaki also designed the World Trade Center, which, of course, was tragically lost on 9-11 more than 20, almost 22 years ago now. And he designed the IBM building downtown Seattle, which I worked in about 30 years ago, and the Rainier Tower, which I worked in about 29 years ago. So anyway, we'll be talking to Katie Yamasaki in a moment. I'm going to bring her on the phone. I'm going to actually reach out to her right now. And she'll call in, and we'll put her right on live. But uh, Cascade of History, you can send an email to us at cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. You can also go to the space101fm.org website for all kinds of great stuff. Okay, there's, there's Katie calling in right now. Let's see if we can just pick her up right now here. Let's see. Katie, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, terrific. You're on the air live on Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM. I was just introducing uh, you a little bit, talking about you and talking about your grandfather. Um, thanks for taking time to join us. I think you're you're in the are in the Eastern Time Zone tonight. 
Yes, I'm in Brooklyn. Thanks so much for having me. Wow, that's really generous. I know a lot of <laughs> we had a guest from Idaho a few weeks ago, or maybe it was in December, and I, I felt bad enough about that guy being an hour ahead, but here you it's are a, a full three hours. So it's okay. It's a pleasure to speak. I was just in Seattle a few weeks ago, and I had such a wonderful time. So I'm really happy to be here with you tonight. And, and was that was your first visit to Seattle? It wasn't my first visit, but it was my first time to the Pacific Science Center kind of on the grounds. I had been there before when things had been under, under under construction, and it was really nice to be able to kind of go and walk the grounds and see the space in the inside. I'm really glad you're getting so much uh, praise for this book that was published last October. What's the book called, and who is it for? Thank you so much. Um, the book is called Shapes, Lines, and Light, My Grandfather's American Journey. And it's a biography of my grandfather, Minoru Yamasaki. And, you know, really it's for it's for everyone. I've been, you know, sharing it with children, mostly from about uh, second grade and up uh, through adults and elderly people, you know, into their 80s and 90s. And people take different things away from it, I think, for architecture fans um, and people who really were aware of my grandfather's work. They're getting a deeper um, impression of him kind of as a human because... He was most known for two projects that kind of least represented who he was as an artist and as a human being, you know, the World Trade Center and the Kuwaitigo housing project in St. Louis. And so the book is kind of for people who are interested in kind of getting to know the human story behind the work. But it's also for kids who um, are kind of interested in seeing what a life can be, even when it kind of carries the weight of a challenging legacy of racism and challenging legacy of um, poverty and immigration. Yeah, so it's, it's really for everybody. It's such an American story. I mean, if that, I mean that's sort of a exactly. cliche, I guess, but it's it's just 100% what 20th century America represents. I mean, my, my parents immigrated from Europe back in the early 50s, and they, you know, they, they came here with nothing, and they, you know, they, they made a pretty good life for themselves that they certainly wouldn't have been able to, to do in Europe. Now, um, I, before you came on, I was talking a little bit about the Pacific Science Center, and I, you know, I... I feel like I didn't. I wasn't aware of your father, maybe beyond his name, in, or excuse me, your grandfather, until the World Trade Center came down. Right. I, well, maybe this is a stupid question or, or a, a rude question, but what was that like for you and your family members when when that happened? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. It brings up a lot of things, um, but you know, specifically about nine eleven, I think one thing that it brought up was just how it wasn't the loss of a building. You know, I, w- I lived in New York City at that time, and uh, for us it really wasn't about the loss of the building. You know, it was about the loss of life. You know, it was about the, yeah. the tragic act and all of the impacted families. You know, it was not a time where, you know, we felt really any kind of way about the building. You know, the buildings were symbolic, and, you know, they meant a lot to them professionally, but it wasn't, you know, it was in no way was that loss about the building. And then I think what was really troubling for our family was when the buildings became a symbol of pro-war propaganda for a war that we didn't believe in. So we knew that our grandfather would also not have believed in. It was hard to see those buildings become, um, you know, kind of advertisements for a war that we didn't think we should go to. So it was was complicated, but um, kind of heartbreaking, um, mostly just for the loss of life. Yeah, and we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of that start of that Iraq war, I think, next month, which is hard to believe. Right. It's already been 20 years. Um, I was just watching an old movie, um, a Jonathan Demme movie called Something Wild, which I think was filmed in 1984 and released in 85. And the, the World Trade Centers figure prominently in it. And I, I, I first time I visited New York when I was in my early 20s in 1988, I, of course, went to the World Trade Center and took the PATH train over to New Jersey. And every time I see them on screen, they're... they're um, it, it makes me gasp. I mean, I, I feel that heartbreak for exactly the reason you described. It's just sort of obviously the, the loss of human life and what that symbolized. But still, it's a work of art that your that your grandfather designed. It's just it's 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 a very complicated reaction, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, it, it's complicated. And I think for me, one thing I was trying to do with the book was to kind of decentralize the World Trade Center and kind of move it away. I did the book very consciously, you know, over 20 years after 9-11 because I really wanted to remove his story as much as possible from 9-11 because they were really separate stories. Yeah. And his mission with his work and his goal with his work was to create these spaces where people could experience his three, three primary uh, principles of serenity, surprise, and delight. Yeah. And 
in that, you know, he really succeeded in buildings like the Pacific Science Center, yeah. like McGregor Memorial in Detroit, like Temple Bethel also in Detroit, and, you know, other kind of buildings that were built much more at a human scale where people could have these kind of like quiet introspective moments or these moments of surprise and delight and moments for everyday people, you know, travelers passing through the St. Louis airport or university students, you know, in downtown Detroit. And so I think that, um, you know, he became very famous for the World Trade Center, you know, in kind of modern history. Yeah. But so much of his story that resonates, I think, with people is about the work that he did to kind of create spaces for everyday people yeah. and create spaces where people could feel fully human and fully seen. And I think that that had a lot to do with, you know, his early life, um, much of it in Seattle and also the Japanese American experience of being a Japanese American man um, in the time that he lived, you know, going to college before the war, paying his way by working in the salmon canneries in Alaska, you know, not being able to get a job in Seattle, um, being denied certain scholarships and, you know, not being able to do the work that he was put on this earth to do for so long because of his, um, you know, family background. And um, so I think that, you know, my impression is that his work resonates much more in the human kind of human yeah. experience of everyday people. Did, did the commission for designing the U.S. Science Pavilion, which became the Pacific Science Center, you know, in, in his hometown of Seattle, did that represent a sort of a... Um, I don't know, like a coming around full circle, or full circle, or some sort of endorsement, or did it did it sort of heal his feelings about Seattle at all? You know, that's such an interesting question, and unfortunately, you know, he died when I was ten years old. So yeah. a lot of these questions like that, I would so love to ask him. And I think that, you know, my impression is that he had really mixed feelings about Seattle because, on the one hand, you know, he wasn't allowed to swim in the public pools in Seattle. He wasn't allowed to sit in the lower level of the movie theater. He was denied a scholarship that was given to the top architecture student of University of Washington the year he graduated. They canceled the scholarship so that they wouldn't have to give it to him yeah. to go and study in Paris. But on the other hand, he grew up, his early childhood was spent in Seattle's Japantown, you know, where he was surrounded by people who looked like his family, by people who spoke the language of his parents, you know, and by people who really understood him and his family. So I think it was mixed. You know, of course, that community was then completely displaced and incarcerated. But, you know, that was not just Seattle. That was the entire West Coast. But, yeah. you know, I think he had mixed feelings. But I don't think he had mixed feelings for, you know, much of the people of Seattle. It was like a lot of a lot of the time. And he was always very able to kind of like separate individual people and individual experiences from, you know, kind of popular perceptions and, you know, um, anti-Japanese propaganda. Yeah. So I think his, his feelings about Seattle were really mixed, but that building was certainly made with a lot of love. And, you know, it's been in the news, of course, this past week, and I know you sent a, a comments into the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board, and I, I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time this week, I, I watched the entire um, the entire presentation that the Pacific Science Center staff and consultants made to the Landmarks Board about their sort of early plans to alter the pools or at least one yeah. of the pools there. And it's just like, <laughs> it, I mean, it's I, a couple of people I've talked to in the preservation community were, were essentially were kind of gasping and saying like, you know, is, is, is nothing sacred when it comes to historic architecture? Because um, that space, you know, and I, I've been going there since I, I can't even remember going, I'm, I'm in my early fifties. I've been going there my whole life. And mm -hmm. those pools with the the arches over them and the the space yeah. needle and there's no other spot in Seattle that even comes close. I mean, there's there's natural places along the waterfront on the lake and Puget Sound and everything, but in terms of a, a human designed space, that courtyard is so elegant and so soothing mm -hmm. and so inspiring. And it's sort of like you look at it and you know you're in you have no doubt in your mind you're in one right. of the most special places, but you're in Seattle too. It's not like some generic. Right could be anywhere. Right. It's so right. site and so regionally specific right. that the, the, the people, the reactions that people are getting to the notion of doing anything to alter the pools beyond, you know, fixing the leaks and um, updating right. the equipment. People are like, are, they're, 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 their blood is boiling about this. It's, it's, yeah. it's really touched a nerve for a lot of people. How, how, how do you feel about it? Well, you know, it's so interesting because I was just there, you know, a couple weeks ago, and I and I had a tour of it and did an interview um, for the news out there. And I I didn't I wasn't aware of that plan at that time. I just became aware of it this past week. 
And, you know, I, when I was there without that knowledge, I was so kind of moved by just the investment of Seattle in maintaining that building. It was never, in, as far as I know and as far as I've been told by my father, it was never intended to be a permanent structure, you know, but kind of how it's been cared for and been loved and been maintained, I felt very moved by that. And I also felt like it was kind of represented how Seattle was really investing in kind of the imagination and in the spirit of its young people, you know, because those arches and those schools, they don't serve a functional purpose of, you know, uh, keeping warm and dry, you know, in four walls and a roof, but they really serve this, this function of, you know, feeling inspired and feeling uplifted and considering like the function of imagination when it comes to science. And, you know, what I think about is how, you know, when he, I mentioned this earlier, but when he was graduating from the University of Washington, up until the year of his graduation, they had always offered the top architecture students in the School of Architecture a full-ride scholarship to study at the Society of Beaux Arts in Paris. And he graduated in the early 1930s. And um, they can't, that year they canceled the scholarship so that they wouldn't have to offer it to him. Uh. And... So what happened was his father, my great-grandfather, decided instead that they would take a trip to Japan which, that they could not afford, you know, but um, he was so angered by the act, he said, we're going to do this instead. So he took the family to Japan. It was my grandfather and his brother Ken's first trip going to Japan, and there he was very inspired by traditional architecture of Japan, you know, and by the interplay between the natural world and the kind of human-built structure. And I think that, like, where I see that best in his work and where, you know, my father and some other, you know, historians see that best in his work is at the Pacific Science Center and at McGregor Memorial at Wayne State University in Detroit, where we have these schools of water that kind of engage the spirit and engage the imagination in a different way. But it's also, you know, I think very impacted by this architecture of Japan. So, you know, I'm, it's kind of this, um, it's a little bit of an ironic moment, you know, where because of this act, you know, that it would be hard to consider anything other than racist, where he was denied the scholarship mm -hmm. to go and study. Um, he went instead to Japan and then brought back with him this practice of engaging the natural world with yeah. the built structure. And it lived so beautifully in that Pacific Science Center. And I hope that they can honor it, because it does feel like um, when I think about what happened to the Japanese-American community across the West Coast, you know, it does seem important, and I'm not just saying this because he's my grandfather, but it does seem important to hold these spaces sacred and to let there be a record of how people make things beautiful out of painful experiences, how he may not have been made to feel um, like fully human in Seattle at all times, but how he wanted to create these spaces for other people to have that experience. Yes. I think that that's, um, and it, it's an important opportunity to not, um, it's not me. Absolutely, nicely put. And one, one of the uh, one of the, the side effects of me watching this presentation the other day was they had a historic preservation architect who showed some images of some of your grandfather's other projects. I wasn't mm -hmm. that. I mean, I knew I knew their names. I hadn't seen photographs before, like the Reynolds Aluminum Building. Oh yeah, with, yeah. The, with also with pools around it, and the mm -hmm. um, there's a music building I think at Oberlin College in Ohio. Oh yeah, yep. And and, and they all have this just sort of. <clears throat> I mean that. I, I'm not an architectural expert by anything, but they all look. I can tell they're your grandfather's work. There's right. there's there's a theme that's present. All and that's pretty cool. That's not all architects can pull that off. It's uh, amazing. You know, I um, I had this experience. Um, you know, I'm also not an architecture expert. You know, I, I'm very familiar with my grandfather's work, but I'm not an architecture historian by any means. But I do have this experience. You know, and it was largely from growing up, going to his home and my grandmother's home every week when we were kids where, you know, any building I step into, even if I didn't know, like around Detroit, there are tons of buildings since where we grew up. So step into a building, you know, on a field trip or on something and not knowing it was his and just having this immediate feeling that has to do with the way that the light comes into the building or the shape of an arch or the height of a guardrail or the material used, where instantly, it's instantly recognizable, like emotionally as his building. And it's pretty special. I agree. Yeah, and you know, I've, I've you know, again, I've been to the Pacific Science Center at every phase of my life as a as a child myself. You know, holding my father's or mother's hand, 
I took my young daughter there. She went, she went to summertime workshops and things there, you know, summer day camps and stuff. I've been there for big special events where they put, you know, uh, bars and food around everywhere, and everyone's all dressed up in tuxedos and cocktails, you mm-hmm. know, nice dresses and stuff and everything. And it's just it's it's cool because, you know, I love the um, I love the secular aspect of American government and the fact that that building, you know, it was it's they didn't mention this at the presentation the other day, but. That that building was built with $12 million that came from the federal government in the late 1950s, which served as a real shot in the arm to the effort to put on the World's Fair. I mean, they were they were trying to pull off a fair by 1959. It got delayed for uh-huh. a couple of reasons. But when the federal government said, we'll give you $12 million to build the U.S. Science Pavilion, that told everyone in Seattle, everyone in the country, and people around the world that this, this, was, this fair, this 1962 World's Fair, this was for real. It was really going to happen now. Right. Right. And the fact that the building was built and that it was preserved and maintained and has been this, you know, go-to destination for 60-plus years is a real testament to its architecture, as, as well as you, what you said. It's the the fact it has been preserved all these years does say something about what people care about in Seattle. I guess my fear is that there's people below a certain age who maybe haven't heard the story or don't understand how important the World's Fair was to Seattle's future, how important science was to that World's Fair, and how important that $12 million was. I mean, I'm not saying the fair wouldn't have happened if that $12 million hadn't come when it did, but it it would have been a real real nail-biter to to have pulled off the fair without that huge, you know, imprimatur, that real, like, you know, vote of confidence from the federal government supporting this fair. And then they commissioned your grandfather to do the design, and unlike so many other public spaces that sometimes are sort of less than inspiring, he comes up with this thing. It's almost like a secular church, a secular right. a secular public space that you know looks skyward and incorporates yeah. nature. And one of the things I thought was funny when they were talking about the other day, they said that um, if they drain the pools, you know, because they have there's problems with leaks and everything, right? They'd have to put some kind of railing up. And it never struck me before. There's no railing around those right. pools. Right. Because it's just sort of you naturally know. I mean, obviously, if you have a little kid, you're holding on tight to his or her right. hand. But it's just this brilliantly designed public space that my hope is they don't screw it up. I mean, it's the Science Center has to get the permission of the Landmarks Preservation Board to make any serious, significant changes. Mm-hmm. And just based on public response over the last week or so, I don't I would guess about 70 percent of people. This is some based on some non-scientific social media polls and stuff. Seventy percent of people uh-huh. want to preserve it the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's a done deal either way. So I do hope that people understand that they can they can have a say in this because it is a uh, it's a public space. It's privately owned by the Science Center, but they're a nonprofit organization. But I think there's right. going to be a lot of community debate about what historic preservation means. You know, can you can you take up two reflecting pools and turn one into a meadow without completely desecrating something that's been revered right. for decades? So. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Yeah, and I th- I like the idea of, you know, how you talked about bringing your daughter there and also you being there at every phase of your life. And when I visited, I was so moved just to see the space in action and all of the young people there. And, you know, to think about also, you know, the diverse population of Seattle and to, you know, if it gets this historic landmark in the way, you know, kind of preserving not just the physical structure, but kind of the idea behind it that um, everybody deserves these spaces of kind of awe and wonder and surprise. That yeah. resonates a lot, I think, with young visitors who, you know, might be wondering about their own capacity, you know, their capacity to imagine and what science has to do with that. So, yeah, I agree. I hope that I hope that they can make it happen, and I hope that people who kind of feel strongly about it are, will be inclined to engage. Definitely. I mean, let's talk a little bit about your grandfather. You said he, you were 10 years old when he passed away. What was he like as a grandfather? Can you give me some sort of personal details that kind of illustrate him as like yeah. when he's not at the drafting table? Yeah, I mean, he he was a wonderful grandfather. We were, you know, he was in his mid-70s when he passed away, and we were a kind of a pack of eight grandchildren, and huh. we were very much like kind of raised by hippie parents, we were <laughs> hippie children in this very pristine home of white carpets and you know it was a home he designed and <laughs> but it was a home where we felt infinitely welcome you know and it's funny because we would come over in our you know very you know hippie ways and of we'd take our shoes off because it was Japanese home and kind of just tear through the house and I think you know from my memory and also from the way our parents describe it you know nothing really brought him more pleasure than to have us all there and he you know he as much as like it was a an architectural home, 
he didn't treat anything more precious, you know, in terms of the sculptures in his home or the the whiteness of the carpet and the walls and the you know the <laughs> art from Japan. He didn't. Nothing was more precious there than than we were That's and his grandchildren. And um, we felt that. That's so. nice. Did he, what kind of hobbies did he have? Did he like you know? Did he collect anything or did he play golf? Or I mean, what was he? He did play golf. I my what I've heard is that he was not good at golf. You know, I mean, he um, he worked way too much. You know, and I think that like you know, one thing that really came up a lot in this, you know, the research I did and all the conversations I had with and his family was, you know, there's a cost that comes a personal cost when you are told from your earliest days that your life doesn't have inherent value you know yeah. from because of your race or you know the, your ethnicity and and he was he was on a mission from his very young age to prove his worth and to prove himself and to prove his place yeah. and that took a physical and emotional toll so i think that like he didn't have a lot of time for hobbies you know he yeah. really he worked himself to the bone mm-hmm. you know and i i wonder if he had been born you know at a different time you know where he felt valued and where he didn't feel like he had to prove himself you know how his how his own health and uh, things like that would have would have fared over the long term. Yeah. Oh man, that's that's such a that's such a fine line because then it's yeah, yeah. That, that 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 line between being driven so hard that you're Absolutely. creating so much work versus not being driven that hard and not creating Absolutely. the work. I mean, oh, what a, that's 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 the tension. That's the tension of America, I think, yeah. right there too. Um, I, I mentioned before you came on the air. I worked in two buildings your father designed. I worked in the IBM building here in Seattle. Oh. And mm-hmm. I worked kitty corner across the street in the um, Rainier Tower, the building that right. has a very narrow base. So I've, I've spent right. I spent probably four years in uh, Yamasaki buildings in my life earlier earlier in my yeah. career. All right, well, Katie Yamasaki, your book is called Shapes, Lines, and Light: My Grandfather's American Journey. How can people find the book? How can they find out more about your other work? Well, um, you can find out more about my book on my website, which is just my name, katieyamasaki.com, or on social media, Katie Yamasaki. Um, and, uh, you know, my publisher is Norton Young Readers. You can always purchase through them or through any, you know, independent bookstore. I mean, Seattle has perhaps the best selection of independent bookstores I've ever seen. I got to visit <laughs> a few of them while I was there, uh, Elliott Bay and um, the and Third Place Books in Ravenna oh, yeah. hosted me as well. I had such a wonderful time. So um, any local bookstore, I think, has a book right now. But um Thank you so much for having me on. It was really nice to talk to you. Oh, it's a great pleasure. I'd love to meet you in person sometime. And let's let's keep in touch as this Pacific Science Center plans to possibly alter those pools um, moves forward. Because I think you're you're key in uh, in efforts to make it clear that that people really care about that space and that space is very meaningful beyond just your family, oh, you. beyond just you know the the, the people here in the room tonight. I mean, we're, this is an important civic treasure that your grandfather created for us that we owe it to him and everybody else to be stewards of. So. Thank you so much for joining us, and I appreciate you on the late time zone, and thanks for staying up late with us here on Cascade of History. Thanks, Katie Yamasaki. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Good night. Have a good evening. You too. That's Katie Yamasaki, granddaughter of Minoru Yamasaki, who designed, among other things, the Pacific Science Center, which was originally called the U.S. Science Pavilion for the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. We will keep on top of that story because um, it's – it's very important. It's one of the most important civic treasures here in Seattle. And anyway, the more to come on that story, I guess. All right. Uh, coming up in a minute or two, we're going to talk to Greg Herschelt, a radio legend from many decades until just very recently when he retired. But before that, I have a little audio snippet from an oral history that I collected late last year. I talked to a gal named Margaret Mangan. She's in her late 80s. Uh, she might even be 90 by now. I don't remember when her birthday was. But she was stationed here at Sandpoint Naval Air Station. And when she got here, she really wanted to work in the control tower for the airfield. And so I have just a little snippet about how she was able to convince her superior officer to let her work in the control tower at Sandpoint Naval Air Station more than 70 years ago. Margaret Mangan. So I went down there, and I went down, and they let me go up in the tower. And I got up there, and I said, oh, boy. Oh, this, this, this is where I want to be. So I I made an an appointment to talk to the commanding officer for the control tower. And so we chatted for a while, and uh, he said, um, Margaret, come back and and see me uh, tomorrow, uh, you know, such and such a time. I want to talk a little further with you. And uh, so I said, oh, fine, okay. So I did. I went back to my duties and whatnot, and the next day I went back. 
to his office, and we chatted for a little bit more. And he said, Margaret, I want you to listen to something. And he turned around, and he flipped a couple of switches on a device that he had, and he had been recording our conversation. And at that time, I had the thickest Boston accent you'd ever want to hear in all your life. And he said, Margaret, if you think that kind of speech is going to be, you know, readily audible over radios, I'm afraid it won't work. And I said, oh, 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 oh. And I knew about the Boston. You know, I'd gotten kidded at this point in in the service. Everybody was kidding me about my Boston accent. But I also had an ear for accents. Because when I studied French and Spanish in high school, I was very good at pronunciation. So I know I had a really good ear. So I said, I tell you what, Commander, I said, give me a give me a chance. Give me two weeks and let me come back and I'll talk to you some more. And he said, okay, go ahead. You're on. So I went back up and I talked to everybody. I, I talked to, well, most of the people that were at that base were Midwesterners or a few, of course, the one guy uh, in the tower was a native Seattleite and he was the only uh, a reservist who was original, you know, the staff in the tower. And so I talked to him a lot. Uh, of course, now my, my accent has come back a bit, but I was able to change my speech entirely and was able to speak like a human being. Why? <laughs> and so I went back my meeting with the commander, and we chatted for a while, and he said, well, I never would have believed if I hadn't heard it or seen it. And he said, you really changed your speech. He said, I can understand everything you're saying now. <laughs> so he said, okay, Margaret, you've got a job. I'll transfer you here to the tower. And that was how I I, the whole thing started. That's Margaret Mang, and that's an excerpt from an oral history interview I did with her late last year about her time here at Sandpoint Naval Air Station more than 70 years ago. Um, she's still going strong. I have a, I talked to her for about an hour, maybe more than an hour. She told a lot of great stories. That was one of my favorite ones. But you're listening to Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. We're streaming live all over the world at space101fm.org. The show is also available as a podcast, but you know me. I'm a live and local radio purist. I like to have live and local radio conversations, which is why it's so great to be back live here after a five-week hiatus uh, from the program here on Space 101.1 FM, coming to you live from the Master at Arms quarters of Sandpoint Naval Air Station, nowadays better known as... Magnuson Park. All right, our next guest coming up. I'm going to pull him. Just going to bring him on the line right now. I don't want to embarrass him any further. Let's see if he's there right now. Let's see if he's there. Greg Herschel, can you hear me? I can hear you. Wait, are we being streamed around the world? Around both, yes, both halves of the world, the free world. Do I get paid extra for this? Yeah, yeah I'll double. I'll double what I promised you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, thanks for making time to chat. I, you know, was thinking about when I was a little kid and I used to listen to you on KJR when I was just a little infant. Now I was probably 10 or 11 years old. I'd hear you doing the news. I remember the night that John Lennon was shot. You were doing news on KJR. I was, yeah. Yeah. And then, then I think I next heard you when you were doing it at Cairo in the late 80s. But where was your very first radio job? Uh, it was in Spokane right after I graduated from Gonzaga. So that was... 1973, 50 years ago. Wow. Now, yeah. now you're, you're not from Spokane originally, though, are you? No, I'm originally from Southern California. I grew up in Beverly Hills. Okay. So how did you end up going to Gonzaga? Well, I went to the, uh, I went to the all-boys Catholic Jesuit high school in Los Angeles, Loyola High School, and... Um, uh, most of my Jesuit teachers had gone to Gonzaga as part of their training, and I applied to two or three colleges, and Gonzaga was the only one that accepted me. <laughs> uh, and they accepted me on condition that I go to summer school and prove that I was not a complete loser. 
because <laughs> I didn't have the best grade. And so uh, they let they let me in on you know sort of on probation the first year. And I also had the advantage that I believe out of my high school class of 250 boys, 13 of us went from Los Angeles up to Spokane to go to Gonzaga. Wow, that's like a posse. Well, it was also like 1969, and yeah. Los Angeles was kind of a tumultuous area, and a lot of us were looking to get out. Yeah. yeah. So Spokane in 1969, what was what was that like? Uh, it was like uh, 1959. I mean, it, was, <laughs> it was kind of going back in time, but you know what? We didn't realize that we were on the cusp of an exciting transformation there because the World's Fair came to Spokane in 1974. And there was a real push in that city for urban renewal and to clean up the downtown waterfront, which was a real mess uh, when I got there. But by the time the World's Fair uh, happened in 1974, uh, they, they turned it into a, just a beautiful, gleaming uh, gem. Oh. It's still a beautiful part of Spokane that was underappreciated back then. So what was that station you started working at in 1973 in Spokane? It was KJRB, ah. which was the farm team of the <laughs> mighty KJR in Seattle. Yeah. And so, what was your first, what was your very first job at KJRB? My very first job was to work six p.m. till midnight doing the news twice an hour. Now, this was a top forty wow. music station that the teenagers listened to, but this was a different era because radio stations under federal law had to provide news and public service. Uh, all that changed in the 80s when they deregulated the industry. Uh, but back then, I was the third full-time news person at this top 40 radio station in Spokane. Yeah, I really miss those days of like the, I mean, middle of the road necessarily, but a sort of full-service radio where there could be a specific format, like KJRB, I assume, was top 40 at that point, right? Yep. Yeah, right. But you'd get good news and traffic and weather and sort of general stuff. You felt like you were um, you weren't listening to an iPod. You were listening to human beings, you know, pushing the buttons and spinning the records, and you, and you knew that all your friends were listening at the same time, and you felt that really cool sense of connection that only live and local radio can can pull off when it's done right. You know, you'd pull up to a stop uh, to a red light at a traffic signal, and you'd have the windows down, and you'd hear that somebody in the car next to you was listening to the same thing you were listening to. That's that cool. doesn't ha that doesn't happen anymore. Oh, it happens yeah. with this show all the time when my mom pulls up next to my dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, <just> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the other thing that was so different is that the the programming philosophy of KJRB and KJR, which really kind of set the tone for the company was that the news was almost as equally an important part of the programming as the music. You could make more of a statement about local radio programming with the news you covered as you could with the music you played. Can you give me, an, so, give me an example of that? Uh, you know, you could, <laughs> you could talk about something happening in Bothell or in Burien, um, and uh, the news people had personality, um, it wasn't partisan politics. There was no, I can't remember, any partisan politics whatsoever. It was more about talking about what was going on in the local community. And the news people had energy and personality yeah. without being biased. And um, they were almost as important as the disc jockeys were. Was there much interplay between the news guys and the DJs, like in, like at the end of the beginning, or before the newscast or after the newscast, like on air? Yeah, mostly after the newscast. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes that was the best part of it, was the interaction that you yeah. have between the two. And, you know, sometimes the news guy would get in the best punchline. <laughs> and the really good DJs would love it. They would, because they knew it enhanced their show. I worked with a few people um, in other places that sort of felt that if I got the last laugh, that it threatened them. <laughs> <laughs> let's so let's, let's what, name some names. You're retired no, no, now. No, no. Who are those no, no, people? No, no. <laughs> no but uh, you know, it, it, that, that was just kind of interesting. I knew where to draw the line with certain people. <laughs> yeah. So, so you were in Spokane for Expo '74 then? Yeah, for oh. I was there for five and a half years. Oh wow! Uh, it, it was a very exciting summer, uh, and I'm thinking about it right now because, you know, as we hear that Jimmy Carter is. Is, is now in hospice care. I got to meet Jimmy Carter in 1974 
when he was the new governor of Georgia. Oh, wow. And um, I did the news at night, but during the day, I had kind of a part-time job emceeing events at the little outdoor amphitheater at the World's Fair. And uh, in 1974, during the fair, every few days, it was like a certain state's official day. So one day it was Georgia Day at the World's Fair. And the new governor arrived, and I didn't know who Jimmy Carter was. Nobody (laughs) did. And he showed up without an entourage, as opposed to some of the other big shots that showed up that summer. And he was so down to earth. And um, I remember he had a cardigan sweater on. He didn't have any group of people with him, really. Um, And we stood sort of backstage, whatever it was, and talked for several minutes before it was time for me to introduce him and let him, you know, talk about his state. And he just wanted to ask me about myself. Uh, Do you have a family? Uh, You know, what's it like living in Spokane? This and that. He was the kindest man. Hmm. And then I fast forward to about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, he came through Seattle and, um, they brought him into Como, where I was anchoring the morning show. I was there alone that morning. My partner was off that day. And um, he got there early. And uh, they brought him in. And, you know, they swept the room for the Secret Service, made sure the room was safe. And he, they sat him on a stool in the corner of the studio. And I was alone in that room for 10 minutes with Jimmy Carter. Huh. He had a cup of coffee. And he sat there sort of with his eyes half closed, listening to the, me do the broadcast. And we'd go into a commercial break, and he kept asking me questions. Uh, I remember him saying, how do you keep track of what you're supposed to do? <laughs> and, and he said to me, you're, you're so good at what you do. And I, I am blown away. I'm sitting there trying not to be self-conscious, but Jimmy Carter is alone in the room with me for 10 minutes. That's pretty cool. That's pretty. It cool. was very cool. I'll always cherish that memory. Now, prior to working uh, as a news guy at KJRB starting in 1973, had you had what was the earliest stirrings you had of thinking you wanted to work in journalism or work in broadcasting? Well, my dad was a sort of a PR agent who would kind of plant little things in the Hollywood news deal trade papers when I was a kid, and so I was. It was always very exciting to see him typing up a little three or four line item about so and so you know, being seen at this restaurant or so-and-so <laughs> negotiating this deal for this show. And so I kind of went to college hoping that I could be a a newspaper reporter. I really wanted to do that. And then I sort of got a taste in college of what college radio was like, and then I got a taste of what it was like to be on the microphone and make people laugh a little bit. And So I kind of got the bug, <laughs> and I was able to sort of combine the writing and the journalism part of it with the sort of broadcasting part of it. I was very lucky. Did Gonzaga have a student station in those days? They did, but nobody could listen to it. It, <laughs> it didn't go out over the air. It was what they called carrier current. Oh. So it was broadcast through the electrical system. So if you were in the dormitories and you had a radio plugged into the electrical out, you could, let, you could hear sort of a staticky version <laughs> Of the radio station. It was pretty pathetic, but it was more like a little laboratory for all of us to play. And we got free record albums from the record companies. So. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Now, um, at, so KGRB then, um, did you, that, at that point, did you think, I'm going to stay in Spokane here after Gonzaga? Or what was your, I mean, what was the, what was the choices, decisions you were making there in the early 70s? Well, the first few years, I was just so happy to learn. And I worked with the best people, and almost every one of them wound up being transferred over to KJR. Uh, one of the guys wound up taking a job in Dallas. Hmm. Um, so it was a great stepping stone for radio talent, but I watched all my friends move over to KJR. And um, um, my wife was from the Seattle area, and we were married in the Seattle area. And so we'd come over r- routinely on weekends, and I'd go visit my buddies at KJR when I'd get in Friday night. And I'd wanted so badly to work there (laughs) and it just took me a while to get there i actually we had to actually move to portland for a job for about a year before something finally opened up at kjr oh what was that portland job well it was actually two jobs it was a station called kite uh 97 a.m 
and it had been the old coin AM, which uh. was part of the, the television station. But it was a disaster, and um, I got there January 1st, and I wound up getting fired on my birthday, October 2nd. <laughs> did, did, did they plan that, especially to, to make it really hurt? <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's how glamorous it was. And we also had a one-month-old baby in the house at the time. <laughs> So anyway, then I took another quick job after that later. Uh, by the first of the next year, I was luckily able to get hired at KJR. Oh, wow. And where was the KJR studios in those days? Well, it, it was on the banks of the Duwamish River. Um, wow. It's funny that, you know, KJR was such a glamorous, glamorous radio station for so many years, but the tower and the studio we're right along the tide flat <laughs> on the western edge of the Duwamish River in West Seattle, but what, uh, on what is now Port of Seattle property. And um, uh, they eventually tore down the, the tower and the, and the building that were there. But when, when, the, when it would rain and there was the slightest hint of a high tide, the first floor of KJR would flood. <laughs> and it would flood routinely. <laughs> And so it was not as glamorous as everybody thought it was. <laughs> so I, that, that was in 1979, 78? That was 1980 when I got okay, there. Okay, 1980. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's like, I mean, that's those are my glory years of listening to KJR, like with uh, Gary Lockwood in the afternoons, Charlie oh, Brown yeah. in the morning. Yep, I got to work with both of them. Okay. Who was the daytime guys then? I'm trying, I, don't, I think it was at school during the day. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, Norm Gregory was there when I was there, and Tracy Mitchell, and um, Skywalker. Skywalker, was, yeah, yeah. He was a teen idol. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in those days. Uh, Rick Hansen. Yeah. Um, you know, when I got there, we had a news department of five full-time people. That's and amazing. that's top top forty radio station. That's amazing. And that's how that's how things had have, have changed in those days. Since those days. And so, were you out driving around? Um, were you doing like field reporting at all, or was it all in studio stuff? Uh, for me, it was in studio because um, I, I when I started there, I worked mornings with Charlie Brown. Okay. And then Charlie, within the first year, um, made what a lot of people thought was a really foolish move. He decided to go to FM. <laughs> <laughs> and he went to work for a new station called Cube. Wow. Um, and everybody thought that, you know, that, that top 40 personality would never fly on FM. Because in those days, FM was classical music and public access and very boring. There was nothing like that on FM radio at the time. Uh, it was the sort of thing like underground FM, hey man, stoner rock. But <laughs> for Charlie Brown to make that move to FM was was a really bold move and obviously the rest was history he he just kind of kicked ass over there did so then he... they moved they moved gary lockwood into mornings and i got to work with lockwood in the morning huh yeah and both of those guys have, have passed away in the last couple of years haven't they they have oh, yeah unfortunately oh, man. yeah um did did uh charlie brown alter his personality or delivery much for the when he switched over to cube or was it kind of just transplanted to another frequency no, he just brought his act, and uh, huh. uh, you know they they brought they hired uh, Ty Flint to be his news guy, yeah, um, and uh, Mary Whitish to do traffic. Oh, and those wow. guys were just an institution for about a decade on that radio station. And speaking of institution, I think in 1984 is when you went over to Cairo News Radio 71. I did, yeah. yeah. Now, I was an intern there. That's when I first met you, I think, in 1991, so about seven years after that. But I remember in 1991, compared to the Cairo News Radio 97.3 that I work at now during the week, the old Cairo in 91 was very, not, not politically conservative, but it was very buttoned down. It was, but it was a, it was a real news station. It wasn't really a talk station. The, the talk that they did in the middle of the day was completely nonpartisan and was so enlightening. I mean, every 30 minutes, you got a first-rate interview with somebody like, I'm trying to think of, I, I can remember one Saturday that I had to pull a weekend shift, and in the same Saturday, one half hour, Senator Al Gore of Tennessee came in <laughs> to, to talk about his new book about global warming. <laughs> and then the next hour, the conservative columnist, Cal 
Thomas came in. Wow. And each half hour you had to do an in-depth news interview, and it wasn't – in no way was it partisan. It was yeah. it was a way to find out facts. Uh, but in those days, Cairo had um, 12 full-time news reporters. Wow. They had bureaus in Tacoma, Olympia, Bellevue, Seattle City Hall, the King County Courthouse. Uh, I was – first hired for three years i worked in the snohomish county bureau and i had to learn snohomish county issues huh. uh they had a general assignment reporter for nothing but environmental stories hmm. um it was just it was a special time and then of course new ownership came in and basically dismantled it yeah that's such a bummer it was, it was too expensive to operate yeah, and they kind of miss the whole point of like what makes live and local radio, what differentiates it from these digital things that like podcasts and stuff you can listen to anytime. That you know, that I mean, the whole live and local radio thing is just, oh man, I I hope I don't, I hope that still exists in some form or another through the rest of my life because it's, it's people under a certain age I don't think don't get it. If you're under maybe age I don't know forty, forty five or something, maybe maybe even younger than that now. You don't necessarily appreciate what it meant to have a station like Cairo, what you're just, just you were just describing, or even KJR, well, yeah. what you're describing, where there's just real live people who you bump into in the grocery store, who are kind of your surrogates for connecting with newsmakers and culture and helping you kind of connect with other people. I mean, it's social media is, doesn't really do that. Social media is like a robot, right? I don't know. I, I, and I, I'm a I'm a true believer. Obviously, I, I get I get all frothy talking about live and local radio, but. Hearing you talk about that in such the specific detail makes me kind of sad. Well, and I remember one of the one of the promotional lines they used for a while was that this is news that was coming from people you trust, and there there was a sense of trust. And then talk radio sort of came along, and and the, the main theme was you can't trust anybody but me. Yeah. And so there are, you know there have been many talk radio hosts locally that have came come along, and and uh, their whole shtick was that you cannot trust your elected leaders, your government institutions. Um, and so when you start undermining that, then who can you trust? Yeah, yeah. I don't know who gains from that kind of a from that kind of a talking point. It just makes everybody angry and distrustful. Yeah, it definitely does does get the ratings though, apparently. Um well, I, one thing I liked about the old Cairo um, was uh, the Jim French that midday show. Because it was so yeah. it was so smooth and sort of soothing. And then what I really loved was the noon hour news. How they take a break from the talk show and do like a whole hour, like it was like a news program. Like that was just there's something about that that was just a very efficient. Like you can listen to that hour and kind of feel like you knew what was going on. Yeah, and you know, I guess that's a programming person would call that appointment listening, but it really was. And and Como Radio had the exact same thing. They also ran a a noon hour of news in the middle of their programming. Oh, with Paul Harvey, kind, right? Yeah, I think he was part of it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, those were the days when um, radio stations had to have news departments. Yeah. And uh, you had to be fair, and you had to be um, credible and non-biased. And um, yeah. I don't know how you go back to that, but that's the way it was in those days. Um, speaking of those days and the days previous, I, I teased a little bit about um, when I first came on that about your long, your family's long history in radio and your grandfather. Can you tell us a little bit about who your grandfather was and what his career was? Well, he was a, a movie actor um, starting in the silent movie era. I think he came to Hollywood at about 1915 or 16. He was a Danish immigrant and... Um, uh, back in those days, they would shoot Hollywood westerns out in a remote area, which is now Malibu, California. <laughs> uh, they would do, you know, westerns with Hollywood, with uh, cowboys and Indians. And uh, it was very primitive and in the pioneering days. And he eventually made the transition into the talking movies, um, which was a challenge because a lot of people like him were immigrants and had accents and they weren't sure that the audience would accept that but he worked alongside people like lon cheney they used to experiment with makeup techniques on each other <laughs> um he worked with i don't know greta garbo and all kinds of people from back in that era 
uh, and then progressed into the late 30s um, and uh, got a break to play the doctor of these real-life quintuplets. There were five little girls born way up in northern Canada back in the 30s, and they became sort of a worldwide sensation. They were the Dion quintuplets. And um, they made movies with the real girls, the real little babies. And, uh, like, they were seven and eight years old and ten years old as they made a series of these movies. And my grandfather played the doctor who delivered them. A real-life doctor, but he played the doctor. And then that translated into a series of roles that were sort of sympathetic like that, doctor-like figures. Uh, and he got the role of Heidi of uh, Shirley Temple's grandfather in Heidi. Oh, wow. Um, this kindly, gruff old man who she wins over. And then that wound up translating into a role on the radio for 17 years uh, in the role of Dr. Christian, who was a small-town doctor who sort of could solve everybody's problems every week. (laughs) And uh, he became really well-known for that for 17 years on on the CBS radio network. So he was on Cairo. That's pretty cool. So now have you aged into that role? Are you going to be taking over that role? Are you going to get the nod to become the new Dr. Christian for the 21st century? No, I don't think I think I'll pass on that one. I don't think I can reprise that one. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, we got just a minute or two here before we have to close another episode of Cascade of History. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is that I, I know like a year or so ago when KOMO was switching its call letters to KNWN, it irritated you that that was that people were saying, oh, Como's going away. Um what was that? Can you talk now more freely about those call letters, or is that? I mean, what's your? What do you think about the whole call letter business with the radio station giving up those letters that were almost 100 years old? Well, it's a typical sign of what's happened to corporate media. Um, the, the company that came in and bought Como Television and the three radio stations um, didn't want to buy the radio, but the Fisher family, the Fisher company who owned them for 100 years or whatever, said, "No, you have to buy the radio with it." And so they bought it and put no money into it whatsoever and no effort into it whatsoever. Um, and then it came – they were trying to spin off the radio stations to sell them off because they just weren't interested in radio. I'm talking about the Sinclair Corporation. Yeah, yeah. And so they sold them to a real radio company, Lotus, based in Los Angeles, and um, they refused to sell the call letters. Um and, and Lotus made a big offer to buy the call letters to protect the heritage of the radio station, and they wouldn't do it. Mm. They sold the call letters for the other two stations, KBI and KPLZ, but they wouldn't sell the Como call letters. Even though the two companies still have an affiliation, uh, they promote each other's product. You'll hear Como TV news product on KNWN. And on KNWN, you'll also hear Como TV promoted and, the, and vice versa. But for some reason, somebody up the corporate ladder wouldn't sell the call letters. So no, it's too bad. You know, it's too bad, but the radio station's doing very well. Um, it's still very strong in the market. There's nobody else doing 24-7 news on the radio dial in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're carrying on the legacy, and they're just – these days, call letters are not that important. People don't write down call letters in a rating diary anymore. Yeah. Uh, people respond to the product that they're listening to. Yeah, that makes and, sense. Uh, so they, they seem to be doing just fine. All right. Well, Greg Herschel, thanks for joining us. Um, love hearing about your career. Love talking to you. Let's do this again sometime. But in the, me- in the meantime, really appreciate it. And have a nice Sunday evening. Thanks, Felix. Nice talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. That was Greg Herschel, a longtime local radio guy here in the Pacific Northwest, recently retired from KOMOKNWN. And this is Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Uh, we'll be back next week with a whole new set of guests. I've got a very special guest that I've been working on, haven't confirmed yet for uh, next week. But please do plan on joining us. Uh, catch the podcast, Cascade of History, any place you get your podcasts. All sorts of great stuff at the website, space101fm.org. And send me a message or suggest a guest to me at cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. I'm Felix Bunnell on Space 101.1 FM.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell.